Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky. This podcast is for the articles, the editor's choice articles for the month of March 2020. Today, I am joined, as always, by Roz Manon, who's at University of Nebraska Medical Center. And today, we actually, this is the first time we've had two guests, each to discuss their own articles. Uh, we have Jamie Todd, who is a pulmonologist, transplant pulmonologist at Duke. And we also have Lisa Van Wagner, who is a transplant hepatologist here with me at Northwestern. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thank you. That was Lisa. Jamie, you're with us. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Josh and Roz. Thank you for having me. Great. And Roz. I'm here, Josh. There's no right. snow and it's, you know, above freezing. So I'm really excited. So why don't you tell us what the order yeah. of what we're going to do today and Let's we'll go through. So as usual, let me just go through a quick table outline, table of contents for the podcast. We're going to start with um, Lisa's paper on blood pressure control. Uh, title is Blood Pressure Control According to Clinical Practice Guidelines is Associated with Decreased Mortality in Cardiovascular Events Among Liver Transplant Recipients. And that is also accompanied by an editorial. The second paper is from Jamie, Jamie Todd, uh, entitled Amphiregulin Contributes to Airway Remodeling and Chronic Allograft Dysfunction After Lung Transplantation, another one with a paired editorial. Then I will be discussing a clinical paper from Gupta et al. entitled Ultra Short Duration Direct Acting Antiviral Prophylaxis to Prevent Virus Transmission from hepatitis C viremic donors to hepatitis C negative kidney transplant recipients, also with an editorial. And then Roz will finish out with two papers, one based, the first one, Basic Science, is actually the cover article from Stabler et al., Transplantation of Pegylated Islets Enhances Therapeutic Efficiency in a Diabetic Non-Human Primate Model. And then finally, with a paper from Jorgensen et al., from UPMC entitled Epidemiology of End-Stage Renal Failure Among Twins and Diagnosis Management and Current Outcomes of Kidney Transplantation Between Identical Twins. So a lot of uh, different kind of cool topics today. So I think without further ado, um, Lisa, uh, will you talk about your paper? Thanks so much, Josh and Raz, uh, for inviting me and uh, to Dr. Kirk for, for selecting these articles uh, for discussion today. Um, so as Josh mentioned, uh, we conducted a study um, at, at Northwestern and Northwestern's tertiary care network to look at the question of blood pressure control in liver transplant recipients and how that might be associated with clinical outcomes. And I think what's the most important thing to sort of highlight as a background to why we asked this question was that, you know, as we've gotten so much better at doing liver transplantation. We're seeing our patients now transitioning from having, you know, acute short-term surgical issues and infectious issues after transplant to really having long lifespan after liver transplant and really turning into sort of what we kind of can determine a chronic disease model where we're seeing patients living more and more with chronic complications of immunosuppression and transplant, um, metabolic complications like diabetes, 
high blood pressure. Um, and as we and others have pointed out over the last uh, 10 years or so, we've really seen a shift in what the mortality and morbidity causes are after liver transplantation, such that cardiovascular diseases are now um, the leading cause of death in the short term after liver transplantation and are either the second or the third, depending on which series you look at um, in terms of leading causes long term after liver transplantation. And so in the general population, we know that if you can try to control the traditional cardiovascular risk factors, if you control somebody's diabetes or you control somebody's blood pressure, you can actually reduce their incidence of cardiovascular events. And so we wondered, is this true in liver transplant recipients? Does it apply to our population given the unique risk factors for developing high blood pressure in this population? And so what we did is we looked at patients who were transplanted at Northwestern between 2010 to 2016. We had 602 patients that met uh, qualifications for study inclusion. And we looked at whether or not they achieved a very simple metric, which was just did they get their systolic blood pressure less than 140 and their diastolic less than 90 within the first year after transplant. Um, we excluded patients who died within the first six months since we um, wanted to make sure these patients had stable graft and immunosuppression um, function. Um, and then we looked at long-term outcomes um, up to five years after transplant to see if having blood pressure less than 140 um, and less than 90 was associated with improvement in outcomes. And we found a couple of key things that I want to highlight. First of all, is 54% of patients going into liver transplantation had a diagnosis of pre-existing hypertension. And after transplant, um, if you look at the prevalence of hypertension, that increased to about 92% of patients meeting criteria within five years after transplant of the diagnosis of hypertension. The people who had uncontrolled blood pressure had all the expected risk factors that we would think of, like having a higher body mass index, having higher prevalence of NAPLD or NASH, um, having a higher prevalence of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Um, but the interesting thing was that if we looked at adherence to getting people below that threshold, only 16% of liver transplant recipients had a blood pressure less than 140 over 90 in the first tra transplant year. And we only got to about 29% of recipients who achieved the goal at five years post-transplant. So if we looked at those 16% of people who achieved the blood pressure goal of less than 140 over 90 over a mean follow-up of three and a half years, we found that there was a 42% relative reduction in all-cause mortality and a 35% relative reduction in a risk of cardiovascular events. So this potentially has a, a really important, I think, impact on how we think about and manage chronic disease in this patient population. First, we've shown that it's actually beneficial to lower blood pressure in this population, but we've also identified a practice gap. We have something that we know potentially could impact and improve clinical outcomes, but we're actually not adhering to guideline recommendations for a, a recommended treatment threshold. Now, a lot of people might ask, you know, why did we use the less than 140 over 90 threshold? Because the new guidelines in the U.S. in particular state that you should be targeting a blood pressure threshold less than 130 over 80 in the general population. And the AASLD and the American Society of Transplantation guidance document that was published in 2012 also says we should be targeting less than 130 over 80. We looked at that threshold, but unfortunately, only 5% of the liver transplant recipients in this study in year one actually achieved a threshold of less than 130 over 80. So we really didn't have power to look at whether or not that threshold is associated with even better improvement in outcomes long-term after transplant. I think the other interesting uh, question becomes is, where is the sweet spot for blood pressure control, which is not answered by the study? Is the threshold, should it be less than 130 over 80? Should it be less than 140 over 90? Is it somewhere in between? 
maybe it's even lower. Maybe it's less than 120 over 80, like we've seen in some of the big blood pressure trials in the general population, such as Sprint um, and All Hat. And um, I think those are unanswered questions in this population. And a lot of this comes with the limitations of doing a retrospective study. And so what we are trying to do in terms of next steps is um, we have uh, currently designed a, a prospective five-center um, longitudinal cohort study to look at blood pressure as an exposure variable using well-measured blood pressure. Um, in our study that was published this month, we used what blood pressure that was recorded in the electronic health record. We want to now look at blood pressure that's measured prospectively um, using guidelines set forth by the American Heart Association for seated clinic blood pressure, also using home blood pressure monitoring, and then also, of course, looking at the gold standard, which is 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, and seeing how using those different modalities might change where we should be targeting blood pressure in this population. I think the other big gap and question that we don't know the answer to is if you detect somebody who has an elevated blood pressure who's had a liver transplant or even other solid organ transplant recipients like a kidney transplant or a lung or a heart, what should you be using to try to lower that, that blood pressure um, to goal? One of the observations we had in our study was even though only 16% of people met the threshold, about 40% of people were offered a blood pressure medicine. And so it's not that we weren't recognizing that elevated blood pressure was a thing that should be treated. We just weren't successful at getting people lower. Um, and we need to try to figure out what are the treatment regimens and what are the combinations of medications that can actually help people achieve that goal so that we might be able to impact on clinical outcomes. So I think those are the biggest, I think, impl implications for practice and sort of the areas in which the field needs to move in order to help improve uh, long-term care in this chronic disease population. Great. Thanks, Lisa. That was, um, this is a, obviously a, a difficult study to tease out what is causing what, but I think you've certainly identified, you know, blood pressure is a key factor in the long-term cardiovascular outcomes. And I'm encouraged that you're, you know, taking this forward prospectively to validate it. I was just looking also at the editorial written by Marina Serper, who, by the way, is also one of our former uh, Northwestern fellows. So shout out to Northwestern Fellowship. Thank you. Um, and uh, but Marina uh, brought up, I think, a, a uh, an interesting concept. And I know she does work on telemedicine. I wonder if this is the type of thing that uh, you sort of alluded to this, um, that would be amenable to monitoring from afar, rather like just than just in, you know, clinic visits um, yeah. and getting tighter control of blood pressure um, from you yeah. know, the communication. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And uh, Marina and, and Sumita Srani, who, who co-authored this with her, I think brought up a, a couple of really important points. Um, and one of those, of course, is what's the potential role of telemedicine, not just in blood pressure control, but to sort of broaden this out to other areas of chronic disease management that we deal with in solid organ transplant recipients in general, not just livers. How do we help manage adherence to cancer screening? And how do we help manage adherence to referrals to specialists? And these kind of things are exactly where I think telemedicine could play a huge role. I think another area um, that, that we don't discuss in the editorial and, and we don't really talk about too much in the paper, but that is something that we're working on, I know at Northwestern and other um, institutions are also looking at is how can we help to leverage our transplant pharmacists in um, helping 
us to um, to adhere to some of these these guideline recommendations, these guidance recommendations, things like, you know, um, that pharmacists can really help assist with, like prescription of a statin medication for dyslipidemia or making sure that somebody who has chronic kidney disease is being appropriately prescribed an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. You know, we showed also in, in our manuscript that the, the rates of guideline adherence in those special um, chronic disease populations are even worse <laughs> than just in, in, in general liver transplant recipients. And so I think there's a lot of opportunities to leverage the transplant team um, to help to better manage these comorbidities. Yeah, certainly with um, the array of other medications and side effects and drug interactions. Yeah. Uh, you know, that you need like a whole team to, uh, you know, make all of this happen. And certainly it's difficult yeah. as a single person in a clinic to manage everything. So, yeah. Anybody, any of you guys have other questions for, for Lisa? I, it's Roz. I thought it was interesting about the prevalence of CKD was similar between both groups and the use of calcineurin inhibitor, which back in the day, which was mostly cyclo, it's probably all PAC, was very yeah. similar between the groups. I, there are more people on blood pressure medicine who are in the uncontrolled group, but I guess that's sort of, you know, convoluted because it's a confounder because you're, you're treating them, then they're on more. I was just sort of struck by the low prevalence of use of ACE inhibitor or ARBs, which are relatively safe and easy to right. use when you're on this, you know, the, you know, the calcium channel blocker, depending on the one, is a little bit more complicated, but um, that might be something to look at because it certainly could be, I hate to say reno protective because we tend to yeah. wave our magic wand and say, oh, it's going to help. But, <laughs> but it's interesting. I mean, I, I find them very effective agents. It's just that you have to do a few things to to keep an eye on the, the patient's use. But this is, it, it's interesting data and it really opens up an opportunity for you to do some further further work and further study. And I think we get so caught up in the management of the transplant that we sometimes, you know, go, ah, it's 150 over 60. Yeah, 150 over 90, no big deal. And then they always say, oh, yeah. at home, my blood pressure's perfect. It's you that's making yeah, it. Yeah, right. So, right. <laughs> Yeah. And in the liver population, I, th I think especially as hepatologists and, and our transplant surgeons were very excited when the blood pressure is now elevated um, because they were so low and so hypertensive pre. And, and one of the things I think to point out from this study that's important and that's also pointed out in the editorial is the leading cardiovascular event um, and the leading cause of cardiovascular deaths in the study was stroke. And the main modifiable risk factor for stroke is hypertension. Um, and we've now seen this, you know, anecdotally in, in some cases, I know at our institution, that it's not necessarily strokes with blood pressures that are, you know, 180 or 190 systolic. These are relative hypertensions that are occurring in patients who, you know, had, um, you know, uh, low SBRs um, in the setting of end-stage renal, end-stage, sorry, end-stage liver disease. Um, and then they get a transplant and their physiology is, is restored and their vascular tone has not changed because they had pre-existing hypertension and now they're, you know, have systolics in the 150s or 160s and, and relatively their mean arterial pressure has now increased so much that, that it's potentially contributing to, to stroke. And so I think these are important questions. What's the optimal timing for intervention for lowering blood pressure? How soon after transplant should we be aggressive? How aggressive should we be? Um, I think these are really important questions. So I think this is We've done a nice study and an important study, but I think it actually leaves a lot more questions that need to be answered. And, and by no means is this the, the answer and, and the final study that needs to be done. I like it. It's the best kind of research. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Stay relevant. Well. Stay relevant. 
Well, we could, uh, <laughs> we could, we could probably spend the entire um, podcast on on your article, Lisa, and talk talk about every new or uh, instant or every every little aspect of this in the post transplant patient care. But uh, we got to move on. So, um, Jamie, you're up next. Could you talk about your article? Sure. Again, thanks, Roz and Josh, for the opportunity. Um, it's neat to be be able to participate in this podcast. And thanks, Lisa. It's really great to hear about your your article, and I think it highlights the problem we see in our lung transplant population as well. Well, I think this audience, Josh, um, is no stranger to the fact that chronic lung allograft dysfunction, or CLAD, represents a major problem for our lung transplant recipients. And just as a quick reminder, maybe, to those less familiar with lungs, we clinically detect CLAD by a sustained decrease in pulmonary function measures that can't be explained by another identifiable cause. And this clinical pattern has been shown to correlate with the histopathological finding of bronchiolitis obliterans, in which the small airways in the lung allograft are narrowed or even sometimes completely obliterated by fibrous tissue. And much of the literature to date suggests that injury to the airway epithelium, be it immune or non-immune mediated, may be the inciting event that leads to bronchiolitis obliterans. So the idea for our current paper really grew out of some observations in our lab suggesting amphiregulin or AREG, which is an EGFR um, ligand, is increased in the lungs of rodents with toxin-induced bronchiolitis obliterans. And of course, there's a much broader body of literature suggesting AREG is important in tissue injury and repair processes, including in the development of murine lung fibrosis. So we asked the question, um, whether we could detect AREG and its receptor EGFR in the lungs of human lung transplant recipients with CLAD. And if so, we wanted to localize the cellular source of AREG and EGFR induction. And then um, we complemented these studies on human lung fluid and tissue with some in vitro experiments examining the influence of AREG stimulation on the production of extracellular matrix uh, by airway epithelial cells. So our results demonstrated AREG protein is significantly increased in the bronchioalveolar lavage fluid in association with CLAD. And I think one of the neat things is we demonstrated that in two independent cohorts of lung recipients. One um, cohort was drawn from our Duke uh, retrospective sort of database and biobank and was about 114 lung recipients from Duke, half of whom who had CLAD and half of whom who were CLAD-free at the time of the BAL collection. And the other um, cohort was drawn from the UCLA uh, database and, and biobank. We also examined whole lung RNA isolated from CLAD explant tissue procured at the time of retransplantation for advanced CLAD and from donor lung tissue to demonstrate that transcripts for AREG and EGFR are also increased in the end-stage CLAD lung. And we followed up that observation with chromogenic in situ hybridization assays for AREG and EGFR. And so we were able to demonstrate through those um, fish assays that the airway epithelial cells, and particularly these basally oriented airway epithelial cells overlying regions of developing airways fibrosis, were the primary source of AREG and EGFR transcript induction in the CLAD lung. And um, as our paper sort of illustrates in complementary cell culture experiments, we demonstrated AREG contributes to epithelial-derived matrix production. Uh, specifically, AREG stimulated airway epithelial cells 
to produce hyaluronin, which is a principal matrix constituent. And um, the cells also upregulated the main hyaluronin synthase enzyme, HAS2, in an EGFR-dependent manner. And, you know, so really given the findings of our um, translational studies and the complementary cell culture experiments, taken in context with what's known about the unique way in which AREG activates EGFR, we proposed a conceptual model in our paper uh, whereby repeated airway epithelial injury that happens after transplantation over the lifetime of the lung allograft may induce a positive feedback loop resulting in persistent AREG overexpression by the epithelium, sustained activation of EGFR, expansion of the airway basal cell epithelial population, and a progressive alteration in epithelial cell function. In particular, um, the initiation of profibrotic processes that can contribute to CLAD, such as extracellular matrix deposition. So these findings, uh, many of them being translational findings, I think raised an important question of whether EGFR inhibitors may be a viable clinical therapeutic strategy to prevent or treat CLAD, which of course, that statement in and of itself breeds a lot more questions in terms of whether that would be safe. If it is safe, when would be the appropriate time to intervene? Is it at the time of the injury um, or at the time of an overt diagnosis of CLAD? And so there are many, I think, future directions on the clinical end that we could take to follow up these observations. On the science end, one of the really interesting things we observed in our in situ hybridization assays is that some of the immune cells around the fibrotic airways in our clad lung explants also appear to be expressing AREG. And um, although at the time we weren't quite sure what to make of that, a, a recent study that was published, I think, in the Journal of Immunology may shed some, some light on that. And uh, in that work, it was demonstrated that AREG could be secreted by tissue resident immune cells, and that secretion is critical to regulating local concentrations of TGF-beta. And so it suggests this sort of broader potential link between EGFR signaling and TGF-beta-mediated fibrosis in chronic inflammatory conditions, which is a really neat starting point, I think, for, for further investigations of EGFR and AREG um, as it relates to CLAD. Well, Jamie, that as a, as a late allograft person um, who has always been fascinated by fibrosis and also tortured by it, both mentally and, and clinically, <laughs> I think, you know, kudos to you to have, you know, a novel, you know, a molecule being applied to the transplant field and, and to have a more refined sort of understanding perhaps of what's going on. So. I did have a couple of questions, and I know the time is short, but so these tissue resident cells that you alluded to, I didn't have time to read the JI paper, so are, are, and you said that they were immune cells. Are these innate or adaptive immune cells? Do you have a sense of, are they macrophages? Are they lymphocytes? Do we know? Well, I want to say the answer to that, Roz, might be yes, and also I, I really relate to being tortured by fibrosis. but. In reading the literature, it looks like all types of cells can take on a phenotype of AREG expression in, in certain contexts. Certainly, some of the cells that are, that are more often reported to express AREG are innate cells, particularly innate lymphoid-like cells that may populate 
the uh, subepithelium in the airways of the lungs are a cell population of interest in our further studies. And do we know what signals stimulate AREG? You know, um, proximal, not, you know, distal. We saw there was a very nice editorial um, accompanying this paper where there's a nice figure about the downstream signaling, but we do we know much about the upstream signaling of AREG? That's a really good question, Roz, and one that, that our study did not address. Some of the literature and, and some of our sort of basic cell culture work that wasn't incorporated in this paper would suggest that uh, reactive oxygen species, which of course is a rather nonspecific form of injury to the cell, can trigger AREG um, shedding by the cell. So can exposure to a number of environmental stimulants. Some of the papers we cited in our background and rationale suggest that exposure to uh, Cigarette smoke, wood smoke, particulate matter from air pollution can stimulate AREG shedding by airway epithelial cells. So it, it, I think, could be a link between, you know, exogenous stimuli that the lung allograft is, of course, constantly exposed to and epithelial changes that then have downstream consequences, especially if repeated over time. And, and one last question, which may not be easy to answer. Um, so these EGF receptor inhibitors are somewhat popular in the cancer field and have the toxicities of fibrosis in the lung. So is there like a yin-yang here of the of uh, AREG and the low affinity receptor? And, and so are, are we going to be able to use those inhibitors, you think, necessarily? Or are we going to have to do something more specific? It's a really good question, Roz, and I think it's sort of the elephant in the room and why we'd need a lot more, I think, um, basic and, and clinical data to support using these in the clinic. Um, but I think, as you implied, it's very context-specific, and I really think AREG can have a reparative effect in certain contexts, but it's the sustained expression at high levels that then may go on to have uh, detrimental consequences in the lung. And so I think longitudinal studies of lung transplant recipients where we can characterize AREG and other EGFR signaling pathways in the lung um, over time and relate those better to injury and clinical responses will help us better sort out uh, what might be the appropriate time to intervene. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, thank you, Jamie. Um, really interesting translational work. I think we'll move on to the next paper, which is I'm going to present. Um, I'll try to be very, no pun intended, short about this. It's oh. about oh. Uh, ultra, okay. ultra, yeah. That's Josh Levitsky humor. Okay. That is, yes. Yeah, that is my humor. It's ultra short duration. <laughs> ultra-short duration direct-acting antiviral prophylaxis to prevent virus transmission from hep C viremic donors to hep C negative kidney transplant recipients. And so this is a, a group of investigators at Virginia Commonwealth University who had a protocol of taking what we know about hep C positive, hep C viremic donors to negative recipients. Well, we know that it's very easily treatable if you use a standard course, like an eight to 12 week uh, antiviral course. And there's basically, as long as it, as, as we've learned, and we've, we've presented this here on this podcast, as long as it started in relatively soon, uh, soon after the transplant, 
you really don't have any clinical consequences of the viral transmission. But though all of the previous studies really have looked at a standard course of therapy, and so these investigators had a protocol, and they call this the DAPR trial, which is ultra-short direct-acting antiviral prophylaxis to prevent, et cetera, et cetera, recipients. So it's basically, um, that's the name of the study. And they, they uh, had an initial group of patients that these are all kidney transplant recipients who are hep C negative receiving a viremic donor. They started off with 10 patients in an initial group who, this is very bold, they, they just got one dose of sofosbuvir velpatosphere before transplant and one right after and none, none subsequent to that. And the reason they're this whole ultra short duration is that they're sort of saying, well, the, the virus may not be, may be killed at such a low level in these donors and the, the virus is not technically in the kidney itself as opposed to when you transplant a liver that is infected with hepatitis C. So maybe they could get away with very, a very short duration. Well, that strategy didn't work out too well. Um, they, there was in the, in the, in the um, just two dose patients, there was a 30% transmission rate, meaning 70% of the time it was successful and 30% it was is transmitted, but they were able to cure most of the patients by uh, 12 weeks following if, they, if it didn't work, if they had, um, if they actually had viral transmission despite those two doses of prophylaxis. So then they had a subsequent uh, two groups, one an initial and then a, another validation where they gave two additional doses on days two and three, so a total of four doses, and that that worked out better. So the the transmission rate for the uh, was only was much lower. It was uh, like three out of forty patients had viral transmission. So much lower percentage um, who had that if you gave it a couple extra doses. So in the the concerning part I think is that if you look at the patients who had over over the entire cohort who had uh, the viral transmission, this these were three in the first cohort and three in the second two cohorts. Of those who had viral transmission who became viremic, five of them had a sustained virologic response. But, uh, so there was one patient who did not, which is, which is sort of the, the real concern here is transmitting the virus and not being able to treat it. But of those five who did have a response, two of them had to get retreated with a second line DAA therapy because of some resistance. And so there was a nice editorial from uh, Nora Tarot and Linda Scher at USC, and they obviously commend the authors for trying this approach to try to shorten therapy. Certainly, um, you know, we cost effectiveness was in mind here too, uh, knowing that you know two to four doses is is uh, with it with the sort of response if they don't. If, it, if uh, viral transmission occurs, that they would have the standard, you know, 12 weeks of therapy, that that would overall be a cost-effective approach. But the but uh, the the Tarot and and Cher both are in the editorial comment that the uh, the fact that there was uh, any viral transmission is concerning in, in this approach that and that. Actually, the 
the patients who had the viral transmission, one couldn't be treated and two had resistance. And so, you know, the question is, is this a reasonable strategy in this day and age? And I think it's a start to try to shorten therapy, but I think they may, and I agree with the, with Tarot and Cher that this might just be too much pushing it to shorten therapy, you know, to, to the extent where you're actually having potentially some consequences. And so I think there's got to be a middle ground. You probably don't need the full 12 weeks, uh, maybe a month, maybe two weeks. I think it needs to be studied in prospective trials as to, you know, what is the, you, you basically want a zero chance of uh, as much as possible the patient having chronic viral hepatitis from from the transplant itself so if it you know if it requires a couple courses of therapy and a tiny percentage that may be tolerable but certainly not you know any untreatable viral transmission i think that's the fear here so i thought this was an impactful study because it's really kind of an experiment showing that um, most people will get cured with uh, kidney recipients will get cured with a, a very short course, but I think to extrapolate this to everybody right now, we probably need a little longer therapy. And certainly a, a patient population like a liver transplant cohort, this should not be attempted on, um, as I imagine those transmission rates and maybe um, uh, resistance rates may be higher. So I don't know what you guys thought about this or Roz. Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm impressed, you know, I, their treatment onset, you know, many centers, I won't say the number and the name, frequently have to document infection before they can initiate therapy. So yeah. it goes to them for their for one of their groups where they were giving therapy really early. But, but I agree. I mean, I think there's discomfort that you have, there's positive things, 70% did okay, but the 30% that didn't, and, and, and if you're doing sort of a mass transplant program where you're doing quite a number of patients, you always worry that if you do something ultra short, you're going to miss people because you've got 300 recipients that year and 30 of them are hep C and, you know, how to follow them and make sure we don't overlook this, especially if there's, you know, significant uh, failure of the therapy. So I agree with you. It looks like there has to be some happy medium. And, and, and it, the time to me has come that insurance companies have to start looking at this literature and recognizing that our intentional cause of a transmission in order to maximize the donor pool, it, they have to change their potential financial policies and, and not allow any harm coming to the recipients so that we can utilize these good, most of these good organs. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it totally makes sense to prophylax because you know what they're going to get the virus it happens a hundred percent of the time you know day five seven so um you know setting that up front is a, is a challenge with insurance this day and age and Absolutely. i think we just yeah i think we just need you know a little bit longer term shorter duration to prove that maybe you know two to four weeks would work and then maybe insurance could cover that upfront you know, in a better way and, and, and look at it as a cost-effective approach. Because certainly, you know, by letting it, it's actually, we know it gets, uh, we know that hepatitis C is um, in this setting, it's like, it's 100%. So, you know, and, and, no, and once that happens, it's 12 weeks of therapy. So, again, I think, uh, 
think if it were shorter, um, insurance companies probably would cover the cost of just doing it up front. Cool. All right. Well, we have a little bit of time at the end to talk about your two papers. Well, I'm going to do a, a new feature, quick take, how to keep people interested when <laughs> we've had a very long day, but a great day. So I'm going to mention a couple of papers and steer you to them. One is by Jorgensen et al. It's the epidemiology of end-stage renal failure amongst twins, diagnosis, management, and current outcomes of transplant between identical twins. This is from the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, this is a um, interesting kind of paper. It, it, it's an SRTR analysis of 143 pairs of identical twins that have been transplanted from 2001 to 2017. And why might you ask that be exciting? Because we all probably have a, an identical twin pair in our kidney clinics. But when I when I started reading, I said, yeah, well, but then I realized why. And and so they show you the, the relatively outstanding outcomes of these identical twins, as you would expect, but they're not perfect. They're not they're not having 100% graft survival indefinitely, and there is some patient death, but they're dramatically better than the average uh, transplant. And, and so one thing they've identified is that there may be recurrent disease, particularly in glomerular disease, is the primary diagnosis in the recipient that might be leading to the graft failure. And, and that brought up an interesting point to me, is if they're identical, how come the twin doesn't have the disease? But, but be that as it may, you could start thinking kind of crazy like that. But the, but the outcomes really aren't perfect. Another interesting thing is how do you manage immunosuppression? And in the table in their paper, they show people are kind of all over the place. About half of these patients are not on any immunosuppression by six or 12 months because they're sort of seemingly, I guess, immunologic clones. But, but about 40% are on therapy and some are on um, calcineurin inhibitors and, and mycophenolate and, and less so. And so there doesn't seem to be sort of a standard way we all seem to be managing patients. And, and so they actually, in table four of the paper, come up with what they thought was a six-step approach to recipient evaluation with monozygotic twins. And, and one is to first determine in the living donor, are the living donor and, and recipient really monozygotic twins, and that requires short-term, short tandem repeat DNA analysis of both donor and recipient. Um, I think for the SRTR analysis, they used uh, sex, blood type, and HLA all had to be identical. But they, they highlight, you know, sort of the standard recipient evaluation and, and donor evaluation, the confirmation that they're actually monozygotic twins, and then thinking about the immunosuppression and the long short-term and long-term surveillance of these patients and what may be relevant, particularly in this small, less than 10% population that end up having graft failure and examining it further. And it's difficult to sort of do that kind of granular assessment when you have um, the SRTR and you're looking, you know, 10 years out after transplant where we don't, you know, we report graft and patient failures, but we don't report really the etiologies very well. So um, that's one quick take. And then my other is, is a basic science paper by Norma Kenyon's group at Miami, by Stabler et al., um, looking at transplantation of pegylated eyelets to enhance therapeutic efficacy in a diabetic non-humid primate model. So for many of these, many of you listening, you have forgotten that the eyelet was the hot commodity in, in probably the early 2000s. It was, it was really a clinical entity, and there was 
a breakthrough in, in grass survival because we got away from steroid maintenance therapy, and that was really facilitated by depletional lymphocyte induction therapy. And, and, and then we sort of hit a peak probably in the mid-2000s, and, and then it became obvious that you could get over the acute rejection, but it was hard getting islets isolated, having sufficient numbers, dosing was an issue, but also that islets, when they were uh, implanted, had this sort of uh, inflammatory process that was somewhat innate and it led to the detriment of, of the islet survival. So this group has a long history of using non-human primates as preclinical models. Others have tried encapsulation strategies with other inert materials, but this seems so simple, polyethylene glycol, not some microparticle. And using this non-human primate model where, and if I remember their work correctly, they actually um, make the recipient uh, diabetic by removing its, the pancreas and then infusing the islets intrahepatically. And the point of the paper, and there's some really pretty figures, both of the islets and, and the implantation of them, is both the dose matter that, that the pegylation and, and encapsulation improved the survival, but as the doses went up to a more clinically relevant dose of about 10,000 islet equivalents, pegylated um, uh, islets seem to have longer function out to 200 or 250 days. And this was in the context they had both matched primates, synomalgos monkeys, and some that weren't matched. So it's a little confusing to, watch, to read that through, but they used a clinically relevant um, immunosuppressive model uh, in terms of um, uh, depletional induction followed by Dacrolimus and Sirolimus in a steroid avoidance fashion, which is kind of what was used in a lot of the clinical islet papers. So it's exciting to see that people haven't given up, that they're uh, finding that the acute inflammatory process can sometimes be mitigated by this kind of cell surface engineering and, and, and sort of like um, sort of masquerading islets as sort of being inert. Um, it still allows protection of the initial function of these set of these um, organelles and then allows them maybe facilitates their long-term um, survival. Again, another issue with islets is that you can stimulate an allo response and lead to antibody production. And so and that was a bit of a focus of their work. So um, if you have any interest in, in islets or looking at a preclinical paper, this is not a difficult one to read. It's well-written. And, um, and you can even see the methodologies of how um, the success of the transplant is measured by blood glucose and, and stimulated C-peptides. Do you think it's a uh, clinically translatable model? Yeah, so I think so. You know, I think a lot of these encapsulation strategies have sort of been themselves in some ways inflammatory. So, um, and, and I don't mean that as a joke, but, you know, they could stimulate an immune response. And, and I know some groups are looking at, you know, an encapsulation strategy where there's an anti-inflammatory response mediated by the encapsulated material. But this seems to be, you know, relatively, I wouldn't say simple because it's taken them a long time to get to this point. And Dr. Kenyon's papers go back to the mid 19, you know, 1990s um, in developing this model. But, you know, when you get a, a stringent non-human primate model with relative success, um, that's very encouraging to me. So um, hopefully we talk about, you know, the appropriate management of, a, of type 1 diabetics, but this makes you sort of say, well, maybe this is really going to work. And um, the time is, you know, yeah. now. 
Cool. Well, great. I think we will wrap it up. I wanted to uh, thank Jamie and Lisa for joining and presenting their work. Really, I think this is one of the most diverse podcasts we've had in terms of topics and look forward to them coming out in AJT and we'll, uh, we'll see you in April. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.